So I made a bunch of dumb jokes the first time. It didn't go over well, so I'm just going to skip all of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, yeah, skip them. That's what my wife says, skip them. So listen, my name is Chris. It's really good to be with you. Um, just love, man, love this place. Love what Casey and Judy and the worship band and your leadership team here and your discipleship people. And Dude, it's legit. Um, Nick, just, Nick's handing out, handing out um, bulletins. And I'm like, dude, you look alive in Jesus. He's like, well, yeah. <laughs> I was like, are you in a discipleship group? He goes, yeah, I'm with, with those guys. I'm like, man, I can tell. Like, the Lord's blowing up, man. I can see I can see the Lord in your face, bro, and it's, it's awesome to be here, right? So before I get started real quick, let me just kind of lay this out. I, I see things in my head all the time, all right? Like I have a, my, my imagination is graphic, and it's, sometimes it's, it's, it is a blessing and it is a curse, all right? So the curse part of it would be like yesterday when we were playing this game, and, and if you lose, you get a jelly bean, and this jelly bean either tastes like a real jelly bean or it tastes like something horrific, Right? And I, I said what they were the first time, and it didn't feel right from the stage, so I'm not going to repeat them. But the first time that I lost, it's like, hey, you get this jelly bean. It's either lemon lime or it's this other thing. And I'm like, awesome. And so I bit into it, and it was the other thing. And immediately my mind showed me a picture of what was in my mouth, even though it was just a jelly bean. And, I, I mean, it made me, like, I got really, really, I got sick just from that jelly bean. All right? <laughs> so there ain't no other way to say it. I had to leave the room. And then, uh, if I can just confess, every time I lost, after that, I would just stick it in my front pocket. Like, <laughs> I know, I'm just confessing that outright. I, I'm like, I can't do this again. My stomach is already messed up. So I'd be like, ah, God. So, but here's the other side of that. Here's the other side of that is that when I begin to teach the word, like, my mind gets flooded with the same stuff. So it gets flooded with, like, well, it gets flooded with his faithfulness towards me and my family. And so sometimes, man, I get really fired up here. And what I'm doing is I'm just simply I'm preaching the gospel to myself. And so if it comes across as like anything, like anger or whatever, it's not that. It's just it's that I get very passionate about what Jesus has done in me and in my wife and in our kids and in our families. And I get, because as I'm teaching the word, like he just begins to remind me of these pillars of faith. And I just get louder and louder, Right. So it's a curse in some ways, meaning when I see stuff with my eyes, like it imprints. And so I got to be real careful with what I watch, right? And the other way is when I read the word, like I can see it. Like I can pull it out and spin it and make it, I can see it playing out in my, in my life and, and, and in history. And so it, it gets me fired up. And so, man, I would just say, if that's cool, just bear with me when I get fired up. Is that all right? Yeah. And so the other thing that I would say is let's, let's ask the Lord to come in here because I'm still stupid. All right? Like, this thing is awesome. I believe it's inerrant. I believe it's infallible. I believe there's a lots of places that I can prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is historically in this, right? I know that when it comes through me, though, it can get jacked up, right? People do it all the time. And so we always celebrate the message, but the messenger's not that important, really, okay? And so what I would ask you to do is, like, I'm going to pray for your ears to be, to, be, to be safe from my ignorance, Right? but also to be widely open to God's awesomeness. Is that cool? Is that, is that fair? Okay. And so, Lord, I just want to praise your name for everything that you're doing here. Lord, for this message for Casey and for Judy. God, what a godsend. Lord, I praise your name for this band who seems to sing directly into your throne room. Lord, I want to praise your name for these people taking discipleship for real. 
laying down their homes and their lives and their identities, Father, to make you great. Lord, I would ask that you empower all of them. I would ask that you empower all of them. As far as today goes, Jesus, I would ask you simply and to protect their ears from my stupidity and from my sinfulness and from my misunderstanding. Lord, that you would protect them, Father, so much. And on the flip side, Lord, I would ask that the things that are of you, that are clear of you, that would penetrate so deep into their heart, Father, they can't walk away from here without saying, what am I going to do with this? They wouldn't be so brash to get in their car and just walk out, but Father, that they would, that they would hear you and they would not harden their hearts. They would not act like their ancestors who wandered in the desert for 40 years before their hearts were trying to become more tender, Father, but they would be tender today. Because, Father, this is your house. These are your people. We look at it as you see fit. And everyone in this house said, Amen. Amen. All right. You guys ready to get in the Word? All right. So here we go. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today, okay? What I want to do is I'm just going to read it to you, and then we're going to kind of walk through it. Is that cool? So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. All right? Now I'm going to do a quick poll of you real fast. How many of you have heard that story before? Yeah, a lot of us, right? Like we, we know this story. And so I'm going to invite you to walk into it maybe in a different way this time. Because sometimes it's real simple, man, just to kind of read through and what Scripture doesn't record is everything else that's happening at the time. All right? And so in the very first verse, in the very first sentence, here's what it says. After. All right? Everybody agree that it says after? After Jesus was born. So is this thing happening the day Jesus was born? No. This is happening after. You got it. Right? So this story doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the day Jesus was born. Like this is, there's not like angels flying around, the shepherd aren't lowing, the cattle aren't whatever they're doing, right? Like that's not happening here. This is after all of that. Is that cool? Now, here's what he goes on to say. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, here's the thing about the word. Like, Depending on where you come from today, you're either like, yeah, this is the authoritative word, or you're like, man, I'm just a little bit skeptical. And so for the ones that are skeptical, I just want to speak to this just for a second. Like, if you're skeptical and you're, you're writing something, like, you don't pin it to history. Because here's the deal. As soon as you pin this to history, you're done if you're a liar. All right? 
So like if I was to say, hey, here's what I'm doing on January the 28th. I'm going to be at this church doing this. Well, you can clearly come up here on the 20th and see, or you can ask somebody who was there, say, hey, did that really happen? And I either become a liar or a truth teller, right? So every time that you see scripture tied to history, you get to decide, man, is this accurate? Like the text gives you a clear picture to say, try me. Like to try me here, right? And so here's what it says. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. So we know that this text was written somewhere less than like 80 years after Christ. So somewhere less than 100 years A.D. Christ dies around 33. So this thing is written about 20 years after that, 30 years max, right? And so we're walking through the story. And here's what it says. In Bethlehem, like how do we even know Bethlehem existed? Like for real, like how do you know? How do you know Bethlehem was even a real place? Well, history tells you. Bethlehem is for real. It got sacked over and over and over again. Like, this is just the first of them being owned by Rome. They've been Rome their entire life. They're owned and owned and owned. They get sacked every time you turn around. In fact, there's a picture of Bethlehem today. And on this day, they're still not free. Okay? Bethlehem is not a Jewish place right now. Stories written to Jews. You would think that they're... This is the hometown of Jews. This is the city of David, right? It's a Jewish place, but it's not. Right now, Bethlehem is owned by the Palestinian Authority, okay? It exists. It's for real. The reason they have built these big walls around there is because of suicide bombers. There's a checkpoint going in. There's a checkpoint coming out. Like, it's still owned today, right? You're like, well, that's pretty cool, Chris, but let's, let's move on. It says... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? During the time of King Herod. Again, you have, you have Matthew tying this thing to a specific time in history under a specific ruler. So anybody can go back and look and see, is this accurate? So let's talk about Herod historically, not biblically. Let's talk about him historically, all right? There's going to be a picture for him up on the screen for you, right? This was his model. His nose has been broke, right? Somebody knocked him out. But that's Herod. That's his, that's his picture, supposedly. That's, what his, his, that's the best thing we have of Herod right now, except for his writings. Now, you may tell you a little bit of story about Herod, because I know that what you get here is you see him... Um, doing some kind of behind-the-scenes kind of stuff here. Herod was also known for the guy who built the temple for the Jews. Like, he restored the entire temple. Like, he built this magnificent thing so the Jews would stay loyal to him. Okay? Let's talk about what else Herod did. So, in Herod's upbringing, it was his dad who was actually the, the man with the plan. All right? But as he passed on, Herod kind of took his spot. And so Herod was really close to one of the Caesars. As time went on and how these Roman things play, he became friends with the next Caesar. And so when power swapped, Herod rose the ranks, all right, because he had aligned himself correctly. Like his, they said that his tongue was really eloquent. That's Herod. Now, as this story plays on, you want to take a guess at how many times Herod got married? Ten. In Herod's lifetime, he marries ten times all for political gain. And so you can look this up, like you can, you can go and study this, like he married ten times all so that he would move his little kingdom further along the road. They were all for power, and they were all for land. 
somewhere around his fifth wife, her name was Miriam, he actually falls in love. The rest of them were just toys. But his fifth wife he falls in love with. But see, his plan was the same. Like she, she was the granddaughter of a man who was very powerful. And so the reason he married her was so that he could, be, he could start moving into this powerhouse. And so within a year of him marrying her, you know what he does? He sets it up really well so that her grandfather gets murdered. And so her grandfather gets murdered. Guess who becomes the next high priest? Herod. It's not a good move for him. They know this. And so he, you know, his, his, his wife comes to him and says, listen, <laughs> you, just you just murdered my grandpa. Well, please show us some grace. My brother who was 17 is the next in line to become high priest. At least, at least show some grace here. And so what Herod does, he relents and he allows the 17-year-old to become the high priest. That lasts about a year. You know what happens next? This boy is 18 years old. Some friends invite him to come swimming. They drown him. And then they go collect the money from Herod who paid him to do it. All right? So now you have Herod who has just fallen in love with this girl who has both killed both her grandpa and her, her, son, her brother. And so she gets in her head. She's like, I can't love you. Like, this can't be. Like, I have such hatred in my heart for you that this, this can't be. And you know what happens to him? He ends up falling in love with her. And Tex says that he goes, he drives himself mad. And so he calls her into the office one day. He's like, I'm not going to lay here with you. She's like, you've murdered both my grandpa and my brother. Like, I'm not laying here. And so he goes even more crazy. And what he says is like, if, you, if I can't have you, no one will. And so every time that he travels, he gives words to his best friend. It's like, if I die, you kill her. Right? So every time that he leaves and something wants to happen to him, she gets killed. Well, after a little bit of this, one of those friends tell her. He's like, listen, every time Herod leaves, he's like, man, our orders are to kill you. So she confronts him. He admits to it. Things get worse. And while this story is playing out, there are other women running around going, she has too much of a hold on him. So they plot. They get this big idea to say, hey, hey, we're going we're gonna to trick Herod and think she tried to poison him. And so they succeed in this. He confronts her. She's like, I got no, I got no idea what you're trying to say. I, I don't know. And so Herod pinpoints about five guys and says, listen, we're going to put you on trial. Well, those other women are scheming as well. And so they kind of slide into the story as well. They try her. They find her guilty and they sentence her to death. Herod's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. We don't want this. Like, I didn't mean for this to happen. I just want her to be in prison. Like, I just want her to be taught a lesson. Like, I don't want her to die. And they're like, too late. And they take her out and they kill her right then. So Herod goes a little bit more crazy. He has her body embalmed, put in a coffin, and moved into the palace so that he can be with her. Historically, historically, five years, he sinks into a depression. And it says like he goes out into the wilderness and he does whatever he sees fit because no one can contain him because he is mentally ill, right? So five years, he's, he's gone nuts. The mother of the girl he married, Miriam, she watches him go nuts and she's like, here's the deal. You have ruined my house. I'm going to ruin yours. And she plans a coup. Word gets to Herod. 
he comes back, kills her, kills five of his best friends and a couple of his kids, and he snaps out of the depression. Like that's what it took. And this is the Herod that we know. This is just one little story. So although he builds the temple for the Jews, he also puts a golden eagle on top of it to let them know that they're owned by Rome. To give you even more backstory to Herod, he is an Edomite. Now, if that doesn't really connect with you, it means that, that he thinks that he is endued all the promises that the Jews are. That story is still playing out today, but he thinks that all the land, all the privileges that the Jews are supposed to get by God are owned to him. And so he's making this happen all along the road. He's not a friend of the Jews. He's an enemy of them, but he uses whatever resources he has to keep them loyal. And he will not give up power for any reason. And it's why you read in verse 3, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him, because they knew how he was. Caesar himself said it is better to be his pig than to be his child. You add to that, historically, there's two, two major historians of this time. One's name is Taxidus, the other one's name is Suetonius. Taxidus says this, There is a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow very powerful, and rulers coming from Judea were to require a universal empire. Suetonius, who is the one who actually, who actually was the historian for the Caesars, wrote this, There had spread over all the Orient an established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. And here we see Jesus, less than two years old, not uttered a single miracle, maybe barely being able to walk, still needing someone to feed him, and yet he causes a stir everywhere. Yeah? Historically. Historically. And so we move into this a little bit further because I want to keep pushing on you just a little bit here. It says, The Magi came from the east, and they came to Jerusalem, and they said, Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, let me give you some background on the Magi historically. If you travel back into the prophetic piece of Daniel, like Daniel knew the word. He was a prophet himself, and he prophesied some crazy stuff. And what happened was when he was a young boy, he got drugged to the east, to this town called Babylon. And historically, they think that he was the one who trained magi after magi after magi, like generation after generation after generation. And because these guys were so deep in the word, they were looking for this. Like this is where they come from. The reason that we have three kings is because they have three of their skulls, right? That's the history. The reason we sing that song, there's three of their skulls in Germany, and they think, well, there may have been three, but actually there was a lot more than them. They think it was a whole caravan of wise men coming because they've been watching for this moment for a long time. Now think clearly here, all right? Think clearly. Bethlehem is a town of about 500 people. It's the armpit of this place. These magi are traveling that direction. They're looking for that star. And so on their way, they see the big town of Jerusalem. The great temple's being built, tons of Jews there, must know the word. If you remember, the scribes and the teachers, they had the entire Old Testament memorized. If you were an unlearned man like the apostles, they still had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, right? That's what separated the two. And so you're a magi, you're a wise man, you've been watching the word, you've been watching the sky, like you've been watching for this thing to happen. And you're on your way. And as you get there, you see the big city of Jerusalem, and so you stop because you're like, man, surely this is where it's at. So they roll into Jerusalem, 
They're well recognized because they get a court with Herod. And here's what they say. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Where is he? Now, follow this next part really close. When the king Herod had heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, let's pause in this for a second. It just said that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed because he sees his power beginning to slip. But it says all Jerusalem is disturbed. And so he calls together who? The peoples. Not his people. Not the Romans. He says, I called their people. So he called the Jews. And he said, I called their leaders. I called their high priests. I called their teachers of the law. I called their scribes. Like, if you remember a scribe, like, they, they write one letter, one letter, one letter, one letter. Like, they copied the manuscript, and he called them all together. And he's like, listen, these guys just showed up here looking for a king. Why do you not know anything about it right now? This ever dawned on you? Like, man, how, how did they miss this? We've got some wise men coming all the way from Babylon, yet we have Bethlehem, and Jerusalem six miles apart, yet they don't see it? Like they totally missed it? And here's what he asks them. He says, when he had called together all the people, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They did not hesitate. Verse 5, they say, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet was written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Here's the thing. Herod asks. They know the answer immediately. Yet they miss the star. How did that happen? How, how does somebody all the way from Babylon see it, but yet somebody six miles away doesn't see it? Like, how does that play out here? And so, I'm going to give you the answer, but before I do, I just want to I want to lean into you for just a second. Like, where we're going with this today, I think, is a prophetic message for this church. All right? Along with that comes a warning with it as well. All right? And so, here's what happens. They walk in this door. The Magi, they're looking. The people who should have been looking aren't looking, but yet they know the word by the back of their hand. This is what we call in the West a Bible study. Yeah? Like it's where you know it inside and out, but yet you never do it. And so what we have here, man, we have people who have the entire Old Testament memorized, but yet when it came time to actually put it into play, they weren't doing it. They weren't doing it. What, what had happened to them? Like, what happened to these guys? Because what they're talking about, they're not talking about you, they're talking about me. Like, they're talking about the, the chief priests and the teachers of the word. They're talking about me, they're talking about Casey, they're talking about Matt, like, they're talking about the worst. Like, anybody that you see that's a teacher of the word, like, they're talking to us. And so what happened? Like, how did this happen? Man, if I can just be honest with you, like, this happens all the time. Like, when we know the word, yeah, we don't ever run the plays. 
we run ourselves into a society, man, where we're like, we're just trying to get people to read it. And so we move into the situation to say, hey, well, at least take it off the shelf and try to read it. And then you move from trying to read it to, to doing something. But here's the thing, like the Lord says, the Lord never commands you to read his word. He asks us to eat it. Like the pieces of it that we, we know, we take, we ingest, and we say, okay, what does this mean? And how, how will I put it into play? Because this is happening all over churches. And I'm telling you, I, I can be the, the chief guilty sinner of this. All right? Like, I'm setting up parallels still because I want to push you into something that I think is even greater for you. Right? It says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. You want to know what Bethlehem was known best for? You know what their economy was? They were the ones who raised the sheep for slaughter in the temple. Knowing that, and knowing that Jesus came out of that, was just another prophetic piece. So can I lean into you for a second? Like, and know that I'm immature in this, all right? But I'm sitting here on Wednesday morning, and I'm reading this word with you guys in mind. And what the Lord was trying to work on, I think, is this. So, like, like if you ever, if you ever drive down the streets of, of, of Edgerton, and I haven't done this in a while, but I remember when we first got here, me and Casey were driving around, me and Matt were driving around, and as we, we drive down the back roads, there was this sense of, like, spiritual oppression. Like, have you ever felt that? Like, just driving around the streets? Like, dr- drive down the road, man, and just ask the Lord, like, what does he want to do? Right? Like, you, you can drive down Main Street. Like, and at one point, I wanted to get out of the car and just kind of walk down the street because I'm like, dude, there is just something. There is something here, right? Like, I, I just sense it. And I'm, I'm new at it, and I'm weak at it, and so I could, I could be missing it. And so sometimes I think I am. Like, I'm thinking, Chris, you're just crazy. Like, I don't, I don't even know what you're thinking. But, but the more that I would drive around, like, I would get, it would get heavier sometimes. Like, I would truly sense it. Now, let me just lean into you for a second. Bethlehem is a town of about 500 people. It's a no-name. Like, nobody cares about it. If Jesus hadn't been born there, you probably wouldn't know the name of it either. And as we traveled around Edgerton a little bit, I know you guys did some door knocking. Some of the phrases that came out of people's mouth were a picture of that oppression. Like, like we have a couple of them for you on the screen. Like some people would say, hey, you know what? Edgerton is just the armpit of Johnson County. Like several times I've heard people say, well, this is just Edgerton. Like we're just small town backwoods and what you get is what you get. You can't expect more than that. Right? Like those are words of oppression. In this story, the Magi travel to the big city. Right? Like, are you tracking with that? Like, they, they traveled to the big city. The star was over Bethlehem, but they traveled to the big city. Why? Because nothing good comes out of Bethlehem. It's a little bitty no-name town that nobody knows about. Some people would say the same about Edgerton. Are you tracking with that? It's just a town. Like, nobody cares about this place. Like, it doesn't matter what comes out of there. It's the armpit. Like, nothing good comes out of Edgerton. And I would say to you, look what came out of Bethlehem. 
You want to know the distance between Bethlehem and Jerusalem? Six miles. You want to know the distance between your town and the next closest one? Six miles. If Jesus is the same today as he was tomorrow and as he always will be, and if he says, I never change, it also means he doesn't change his method of operation, which means that he uses towns just like this to push back the darkness. Are you understanding this? Like, here's what he says in John chapter 1. He says, I am the Word, and the Word us is God, and the Word was God, and there was nothing that was made without me, and all things were made for me. And it is the weak things of the world that I use to shame the strong. Are you, are you following? And so in this story, like, what he's pushing you into is, like, why would he not use this place to tell the rest of the world how great he is? Because it's what he does. If you remember Pilate sitting there with Jesus and he said, listen, he said, do you not know that I have the power to crucify you or to let you go? And Jesus is like, you got no power over me, bro, I made you. And you will see the Son of Man coming because I use the weak things to shame the strong. And this is what he does. Like you tell me why Edgerton is not in a prime position historically and biblically to change things. The only reason Jesus came the way he did was so that he would push back the darkness. Like, if you finish John 1, 1, that's what he says. He says, listen, I came, and although the darkness tried to put out the light, it would not put it out. The same is true in you. Like, if Jesus is alive and well in you, no matter where you go, the darkness will never snuff you. And so when you travel, like, your role, like, your place in this world is to push back the darkness. Like, it's what you were created for. It is your purpose, so that people will know that he is God through you. But you got to believe this. Like, I believe with every fiber in my soul that what the Lord wants to say to you is, is like, listen, they didn't think Bethlehem mattered either. Are you following me? Like, I think this is for you. Like, he wants you to know that you matter. Like, not just you, but every place in this little city, you matter. And in this, like, you're thinking, well, we must going to have this big church. Like, my wife was quick to, she was like, let me warn you with this. Like, it may not mean you have a big church but it may mean that everyone in you in this room knows Christ in such a way that everywhere you go, the darkness is pushed back for his purposes. Are you following that? Like, this is what you were created to do. And there are some of you in this room that you're like, man, I, Chris, I can't even follow you. Like, I don't even know what you're saying. And I would say that maybe Jesus isn't alive in you because you're just not sick of yourself enough yet. Like, you're just not sick of yourself, but you will be. Because left to our own devices, man, we are self-serving people. Yeah? I am the chief one in the room, is the lowest form of love. Man, what I would say to you is like, believe it. Like, believe it. The Lord says you are a royal priesthood. It's not a lie. The Lord says that you are a holy nation. It's not a lie. The Lord says that you are a conduit of his power. It's not a lie. The Lord says that if you sit with him, you will see things that you will not believe. It's not a lie. But you got to believe it. you got to believe it. Because just like Bethlehem was the armpit of that area, of Judea, everyone missed it. And I would say to you, I think he wants to use you. Like, I think he wants to use you in a mighty way. This isn't for me. This isn't mine. Like, I don't get this because I don't live here. Like, it's, I'm not a part of this. I mean, apart from being with Casey, like, I don't live here. But let him who has ears, let him hear this, right? Let him who has eyes, let him see that this is you. It's you. And he's calling you into it. He's like, I've created you for more. More. 
so that you will push back the darkness. And that everywhere you go, shalom will follow you as it should be. It will follow you. And as honest as I can say, I believe in every fiber of my heart that this word is for you. For the ones in this room who aren't understanding what I'm saying. Yeah? The word is powerful, right? It's you. And so, man, I, I'm, I think I'm done. I don't think I need to say anything else. I know that this, the band is going to sing a song over you, right? And they're going to do communion with you today as well. And so here's what I would say to you in communion. Like, think clearly about communion in the context of this picture. Jesus came to push back the darkness, and he did it, yeah? He did it. And so then he says, listen, I'm leaving. Like, I'm going home, and I'm going to send the Spirit to live in you so that you can do the same, and even more, that you will do the same and even more than I did. And then I will come home, and I will restore everything to the way that it was supposed to be, but until I do that, it's like you take this, and you live that for me. Because I have created you for this purpose. It's a picture, man, that, yeah, you think everything's breaking. He would tell you that everything's falling into place. And if you read the story, you'll see that everything is falling into place. And he's like, man, you take communion. You remember that I pushed back the darkness forever. Like forever I pushed it back. Because now that I live in you, you can too. Like you can too. He only asked for one thing. The Hebrews knew the word as to mean. All right? That word to meme is their word for heart, but it doesn't mean your word for heart. It means undivided, fully devoted, loyal. Like that's what it meant for them. And out of that, everything else flowed. To meme. Like my, my life is to meme. Like everything about me is fully devoted towards the Lord because I know that he will not lose. Like it's what he's created to do, to win. And he's called me in to play with him that wherever I go, I win. And the people who are broken and hurt, they will see me. They will look past me and see Jesus. And they will no longer be broken. I see this every day. I see it every day. I watch things that I thought could not be fixed and watch them be fixed. I have come to proclaim that the Lord is not too short to save them. It is in him that all would know his name. And it is in him that you would come and play in that story. And that your heart would burn hard for him. And as you track with him, man, he would show you things that you could not believe. And in so doing, your knees would get strong. That's what he tells you in Hebrews. He's like, come along, make your way path and make your knees strong for they are feeble now. He's like, follow me in this. I'm just a man just like you. I put my socks on every day, but I promise you this, I'm learning to push back the darkness everywhere I go because I'm looking for it. And if I won't do it, who will? And I would say the same for you. If you won't do it, who will? Apart from him, you will do nothing. Okay, hear that. Apart from him, you do nothing. If he allows you to do anything, it's only on your own terms. He tells you clearly, I cannot let you produce fruit without me, otherwise you become God and I'm not. But he says, if you will sit with me, I will show you things and you will produce more fruit than you can even imagine. For he is God and that's what he does. Herod, Caesar, Cyrus, all of these kings in here, they were nothing but putty in his hands. 
Like, that's why he says in Proverbs, he's like, man, all the hearts of kings are like water in my hand. I direct them any which way I go, and he directs them clearly so that he will prove that his word is accurate. We can show you that on another day. But I want you to know who you are. You are called into this. Let him who has ears, let him hear. Let him who has eyes, let him see, yeah? Yeah. So, Father, you are good. Lord, I would ask you to impress this. Edgerton-Bethlehem. For nothing good came out of Bethlehem except for the Savior of the world. And I think that's enough, Jesus. So, Lord, I would ask that this moves from beyond belief to conviction in their hearts. That they would rise up. That they would be discipled. That they would lay their pride down. That they would learn what they don't know. Father, that they would become the hope of this world. That they would follow Casey's lead. That they would join with this worship band and sing in your praises. Father, that when anybody walks in these doors or walks in the doors of their house, they would know that these people are Tamim. They are Tamim. Lord, praise your name for this church. Praise your name for this house. Praise your name for these devoted followers of you, God. Nor if they are not, that you would call them into something greater, that you would make them sick of themselves much faster. And everyone in this house said...